Benvenuti a Welcome to Vox Europe. I'm Chris Gilson, editor of the London School of Economics' Europe blog. On this episode, we'll hear from specialists on the rise of the far right in Greece and France, and we'll also examine the link between the climate of austerity and the growing popularity of far right movements in Europe. Is the far right on the rise solely for economic reasons? We investigate. First up, senior lecturer in political economy of Southeastern Europe at the LSE, Vasilis Monastriotis, traces the rise of the Golden Dawn Party in Greece. The austerity measures is obviously a big part of the story, but the other part of the story is the slowness and the inability of the Greek government to implement any kind of reforms. Reader in politics at Queen Mary University and expert in French party politics, Rainbow Murray speaks to us about Marine Le Pen and the Front National. If you compare the fundamental content of the manifesto for 2012 with previous years, there's little change. So I think she's been quite successful at changing the image but not the substance. And for our segment on the future of Europe, we hear from Paul de Gaulle on why the euro crisis means Europe must move even closer to political unification. We have a, a currency, the euro is a currency without a country, so we have to start building a country. And that's the hard part. All that coming up. This is Vox Europe, a podcast from the European Politics and Policy blog at the London School of Economics. The LSE Europe blog brings you the latest debates around issues in the European Union states and Brussels. Posting every day, Europe brings you the best in evidence-based academic commentary on European governance, economics, politics, culture and society, both at the European Union and national levels. Visit us at europe.eu. That's E-U-R-O-P-P dot E-U. This year has seen a surge in support in Greece for the far-right party, the Golden Dawn, who following elections last June now hold 18 seats in the Greek Parliament. The party has been accused by many of having neo-Nazi leanings and is anti-immigrant and emphasizes white supremacy. Recent months have seen concerns over violence toward immigrants and minorities as well as the possible infiltration of the police by members of the Golden Dawn. We talked to senior lecturer in political economy of Southeastern Europe at the LSE, Vasilis Monastriotis, about the Golden Dawn Party's origins and its similarities to present and far-right parties in Europe. I started off by asking Vasilis why he thinks the party has gained such popularity over the last few months. Clearly, both the Socialist Party and New Democracy, the, the centre-right party, have shown weaknesses, if you want, in, in handling the crisis and also are, to a large extent, to blame for, the, for bringing the country into this situation, over-indebted and, and so forth. So one element is that uh, the, the voters are turning towards new parties, one of which is the Golden Dawn. We have a, a substantial decline in income levels across the board, not only the well-off. And we have an explosion of unemployment. Unemployment was closer to 8% just a few years back, and now it's over 20%. So people are looking for solutions and messages that uh, somehow promise a, a better future. The agenda about migrants and how illegal but also legal migrants take uh, the jobs of, of natives and how they undermine wages, the provision of social services and so on, becomes much more central. And obviously a far-right party is more relevant for, for putting forward uh, this agenda. But I think there's also another very crucial dimension, which maybe is not a representative of other cases in other European countries. The very big failures of the Greek state to provide very basic social services, very basic utilities if you want. And the, the Golden Dawn, the far-right party in Greece, actually uses 
methods that help substitute for the absence of the state. So there's members of the party would uh, help old grannies go receive their pensions, or they would help with uh, lighting in, uh, in public spaces. They even have organized food distribution and things like that. So the, obviously the credibility and the visibility of the party increases, and with that also public support. Do you think if the Troika continue to push austerity policies on Greece, that this will mean greater support and parliamentary representation for the Golden Dawn? I think that uh, in the medium term, the support for the Golden Dawn Party will only go up. But this is not only related to to what the Troika, if you want, does and the conditions for austerity that are being imposed to some extent from externally. It also has to do with what the governments or the parties around the government, what they do and what they fail to do. So part of the problem in Greece is not... The austerity measures is obviously a big part of the story, but the other part of the story is the slowness and the inability of the Greek government to implement any kind of reforms, reforms that will be painful, uh, but will at some stage lead to to economic recovery. So the, the delays that we have seen over a number of years now, are also to blame for the situation, both at the macroeconomic level, why we don't meet the fiscal targets, but also at the micro level, what happens with unemployment, what happens with incomes, wages, pensions, and so forth. So I don't think that there's a direct correlation between the pressures from the Troika and the rise of the far right uh, in Greece, in the sense that there are other parties that would have capitalized, and to an extent they have, uh, from the, the, the austerity measures, but it is the inability of the state to provide basic services, I think, that explains much of it. What effects do you think the rise of the far right in Greece will have or is having on relations with Greece's neighbours? Yes, I think this is a very crucial and very sensitive issue. For the moment, there's no visible effects in the sense that the Greek government has been able to handle relations with key neighbours with which we have frictions. They have been able to handle it and it hasn't become a big issue in the public domain. But the problem is what happens uh, in the future and if they are to break any agreements, there's issues of uh, resource management in collaboration with Turkey. There's issue, obviously the issue of the constitutional name of uh, Macedonia. These issues, to the extent that the government will try to find, to break a, uh, an agreement, to find a solution in order to move forward either in terms of resource exploitation, which will help the economy, or in terms of gaining points at the European level, being seen to cooperate more with its northern neighbour, or to the extent that the government tries to to do something on that, then obviously Golden Dawn will be a very big player in the opposition. And nowadays they have a very strong influence on on, uh, public opinion because they're more credible as as a party and as an institution, uh, and also with the popularity comes... uh, demystification of all the negative things one associates with the far right. Some commentators have expressed concern that Golden Dawn is influencing the policy debate in Greece and institutions like the police. How much of a problem do you think this is? Historically, the police and to some extent the military have not been democratized as much as the rest of the society. So there were always either direct or personal or institutional links with segments of what we would associate with the far right. I don't think they were particularly strong. They definitely were not particularly visible. But in times of crisis, of course, they become stronger or they're reconstituted. So to the extent that this happens, obviously, it is a problem. But in my view, the Greek police was never the institution that the, the average Greek citizen would, would associate with. So there was always this kind of fear and distancing of the public from the police. A couple of years back, I was asked to comment on how Greeks see the police. And I gave the example that you know, if you want to, to find directions about how to get somewhere uh, and you are in the middle of the street, 
the last person you would ask for directions would be a policeman. If and when the crisis passes, do you think the support for the far right will fall away? Obviously, we can associate the rise of the far right with the crisis, but then because also of the way that the far right functions as an institution, and the particular party, Golden Dawn, is not your average far right party, it is very much organized along the lines of fascist parties. And because of that, I think even when we eventually get out of the crisis and we achieve positive rates of economic growth and economic recovery, the embeddedness of the party and of its social structure into society will remain, and in that sense, public support or visibility, if you want, and the, uh, the ability to influence public opinion. I think that the most important thing that has happened, and this is not something that can be easily uh, reversed, is that it's exactly a question of credibility and legitimization, if you want. So today, Golden Dawn, even if people are very, have very strong views about it, so they either support it or definitely disapprove of it, it has become a legitimate part of the political spectrum, and that is not going to change with any change in economic circumstances. Because I've seen also in international media many comparisons between the, the rise of the far right in Greece and uh, sort of similar experiences in other countries, but also historically similar experiences, the main thing that one has to focus on is exactly the embeddedness of, of the party in the society. So it is not something that you can see as incidental. It is definitely not something which is very much related to a particular leader. You can draw a comparison with France. I think the role of Le Pen in the party there has been historically much more central. Not that the leader of Golden is not very much respected among its party members, but it's not about the leader, it's about the ideology and the way the, the whole structure operates. And any analysis of the phenomenon of the rise of, of the far right in Greece has to take this into account. It's not something that is, is ephemeral in that sense. That was Vassilis Monastriadis. Queen Mary's Rainbow Murray recently talked to Vox Europe about the Front National in France. Stuart Brown started off by asking her about the success of the party in the country's recent elections, where the Front National gained their highest ever vote share in the first round of a presidential election. There were a number of reasons why the Front National did very well. I think some of them were circumstantial and some of them were a result of renewal of their leadership. So in terms of circumstantial benefits, the economic crisis served the Front National well. They tend to do well amongst people who are discontent, which a lot of people in France are at the moment. They do well amongst people who are in situations of economic distress, and the large number of unemployed people in France also ticks that box. Um, one of the strongest areas for the Front National is immigration, and when economic times are bad, people are more likely to resent immigrants who are seen as taking scarce jobs. And so that created a rise in ethnic tensions that also worked to the benefit of the Front National. In terms of leadership, they were led by the same person since their incarnation almost 40 years earlier, which was Jean-Marie Le Pen. He stood down in 2011 and was replaced by his daughter, Marine Le Pen. As well as being almost 40 years younger than him, she's also got a very different image. Uh, she's female. She's tried quite hard to rejuvenate the party, not just literally, but also in terms of its appeal to make it less radical and extreme and to make it more appealing to a wider range of potential voters, not least of whom women, who were much more likely to vote for the party in 2012 than previously. Marine Le Pen has been responsible for what some people say is the detoxification of the Front National. Do you think that the party has genuinely been detoxified? 
I think that there are two levels. On the surface, I think she's been quite successful at detoxifying the brand. She has a much fresher image than her father did. She's tried to steer clear of certain topics that used to get him into trouble, such as Holocaust denial. Um, She's got a much softer stance on issues like abortion, which is another reason why she's been better able to appeal to women voters. Um, To the extent that racism endures in the Parnassianau, and it certainly does, the main target at the moment is Muslims, who are quite a popular target in France in terms of Islamophobia and also Roma who are again quite unpopular so she's updated the party's brand of racism. In terms of ideology I think there's been much less shift than perhaps might at first appear cosmetically. If you compare the fundamental content of the manifesto for 2012 with previous years there's little change so I think she's been quite successful at changing the image but not the substance. Is it possible to draw a comparison between the popularity of the Front National in France and other far-right movements in Europe? I think it is possible to draw comparisons. It has to be said that the Front National has always been a little bit of a special case. It's partly due to its history that it's a long-standing party that has managed to build on success over many years and that has been united by the strong Le Pen leadership. Even though they've had a change, it's still a, a dynasty, if you will. I think... The party has also benefited from the unique opportunity provided of the presidential elections. If you look at the party's success in parliamentary elections, it's much lower. They get a lower share of the vote and they tend to win few of any seats. So most of their profile raising takes place in the presidential elections, which is built around a single candidate. You don't see that same degree of mobilisation in most comparable European far-right parties, which is why they tend to have a low vote share and they tend to have a lower profile. But some of the circumstances that benefited the Front National in 2012, the economic crisis, the increased Euroscepticism as the Euro crisis expanded throughout the European Union, and the increased sense of resentment towards immigrants are things that are also fueling success of comparable parties in other countries. You mentioned the economic crisis. Do you think that if there was a solution to the crisis, that support for the Front National would uh, decrease? Almost certainly, and one of the best predictors of the success of the Front National in any election is the level of unemployment. If you had to do a regression model with a single predictor, it would be unemployment. So the high levels of unemployment at the moment have worked to the National Front's advantage, and I think if the economic situation improved and more people found themselves in jobs, you would almost certainly see their vote share go down again. Do you think we will ever reach a point where the Front National forms a government in France? I think it's almost certain that that won't happen. A very clear indicator of this took place in 2002 when, to universal surprise, Jean-Marie Le Pen qualified to the second round of the presidential election. So that was his definitive opportunity to take the presidency if it was ever going to happen. And he got only 17% of the votes, 17 point something percent, um, only a fraction more than he obtained in the first round, which suggests that people who haven't already voted for him in the first round are unlikely to do so in the second round. And it has to be borne in mind that he was stood against Jacques Chirac, who was quite unpopular as the outgoing president and who had not been expected to win the second round against the socialist candidate. So if the FN couldn't even manage 20% of the vote share then, I can't imagine a future scenario where they get more than 50%. And this is partly a function of how they're regarded within the party system. Most people who don't vote for the Front National despise the Front National, so they don't have much appeal beyond their natural electors. And a lot of other parties refuse to cooperate with the Front National, so 
their alternative opportunity, which would be to get into a coalition government, is also unlikely. We have seen growing pandering towards the Front National from the UMP, the, um, the mainstream right party of, of Nicolas Sarkozy, who have tried to adopt some of the FN's themes in order to win back voters from them. And in fact, what they've probably done is make the FN more acceptable and actually boost the vote share of the FN. But there's still only a fairly small margin within the UMP who are willing to cooperate with the FN. The majority distance themselves from it. And all parties in every other aspect of the party system have been quite vocal in their opposition to the FN. So I think their long-term prospect is anything more than a protest party are pretty slim. Do you think the Front National is a broader movement that could exist without the Le Pen family? I think the personal element is quite strong. Um, it's always been associated with the name Le Pen. There was little surprise that it was Jean-Marie Le Pen's daughter who took over the party. And in the recent parliamentary elections, two candidates were elected, one of whom was uh, the granddaughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen and the niece of Marine Le Pen. So the family dynasty element is strong. There have been previous attempts to challenge the leadership from people outside the family that have failed. In the long term, if the party wishes to flourish, it will need to move beyond that dynasty in order to ensure its long-term survival. But I think the leadership of Marine Le Pen is comfortably assured for probably the next 20 to 30 years. And who knows what the state of French politics will be like by then. That was Rainbow Murray. The Future of Europe series on our podcast take a closer look at how Europe might be reshaped in the aftermath of the current crisis. This week, we asked world-renowned LSE economist Paul de Graal how he would solve the Eurozone crisis and what his ideal Europe would look like. Most fundamentally, of course, what we need is trust. It seems to me that today, without trust, it's very difficult to move anything. Just to give an example, German government and German public opinion in general has a deep distrust today about um, southern European countries, and they are not willing to provide financial assistance because they are afraid that this will be exploited. And similarly, in the south of Europe, there is distrust vis-à-vis the intentions of Germany. So we we really need to convince uh, European politicians that have to start trusting each other. If that's not done, all the rest will be extremely difficult. So practically then what has to change is, first, the European Central Bank that has announced that it is willing to provide financial assistance in times of crisis should start doing this as quickly as possible, which also means that a number of countries like Spain that today hesitate to call for that assistance turn around and accept the inevitability of this. So that's the first thing that, that will have to change. A second change is the macroeconomic policy that, it seems to me, is the wrong one in the Eurozone. Um, the European Commission now is pushing all countries of the Eurozone together to institute more severe budgetary austerity. And that has now brought the whole of the Eurozone into a new recession. The rest of the world is tending to get out of the recession, like in the US, maybe also in the United Kingdom but not in the Eurozone. It's going back into a recession, mainly because of ill-designed policies of trying to balance the budget all at the same time, and that doesn't work. It leads to a vicious spiral downward, and as a result, government revenues decline instead of increasing, and then they find out at the end of the day that all their uh, efforts to reduce the budget deficits have not worked. 
So I think we need a better approach which consists in telling countries in the north of Europe that they could in fact stimulate the economy. They have the means to do so. Their budgetary situation is now stabilized, so they should go ahead. And then the final thing that we should start moving in the Eurozone is concrete steps towards more political unification because that's the key to the long-term survival of the Eurozone. If we cannot manage to move in the direction of more political unification, the euro will not last. It's like saying, well, we have a, a currency, the euro is a currency without a country, so we have to start building a country. And that's the hard part, that's very difficult. But we have to start to, to give a signal to the market that, uh, yes, we, we are serious about this. I think that we really have to realize that uh, we are now at a kind of bifurcation. Either we accept the logic of a euro and a common currency, and that logic is that we move forward towards more political unification, or we refuse to accept that logic, uh, but then the euro cannot last. So my ideal for the Eurozone now would be that, yes, we accept the logic uh, that if we want to keep the Euro, we have to build on constructing stronger political institutions. And that would mean uh, we have some kind of European government that has some power to tax, backed up by democratic legitimacy, which must come from the European Parliament. So that's the kind of Europe that I have in mind. Now, I'm in favor of this. I realize that many of my European friends and, and citizens in Europe in general are very reluctant to go in that direction. I like to be an optimist and say that, yes, we will put our energy together to move forward towards more political unification, and then in five years' time we will have the euro, but maybe that's wishful thinking. So I leave the possibility open, a more negative scenario, that we do not manage to do so. In five year times, it's very well possible that the euro, as we know it now, will not exist. And so that what is left over is some mini eurozone or maybe a total disintegration. All these things become possible once you go into the negative territory of the future. That was Paul de Graaf, head of the LSE's European Institute. That's all for this episode of Vox Europe on the far right. Join us next month as we take a closer look at threats to democracy in Romania and Hungary. Vox Europe is a podcast series put out by the Public Policy Group at the London School of Economics. One member of our blog family, the LSE Review of Books, have produced a series of podcasts featuring interviews from notable authors in the social sciences, with episodes looking at the effects of the Olympics on East London, Marxism, and language. In the latest LSERB podcast on China, Amy Mollett speaks to Middlesex University's Rosemary Sales in London's Chinatown about China's diaspora. Chinatown is a very visible presence for the Chinese people, but yet Chinese people are the most scattered of any ethnic group in this country, therefore tend to be less visible in other uh, contexts. You can listen and download the LSERB podcast on iTunes or on their website at lsereviewbooks.com. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley. For a full list of the music and sound used in this episode, and to hear our interviews individually, visit our blog at europe.eu. I'm Chris Gilson, and we hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>